Hello and welcome to the latest Buns Fan Podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, your host and Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. Coming up on the podcast is an interview with Simon Moon, co-fund manager of the Unicorn UK Ethical Income Fund, which is a member of Interactive Investor's ACE40. In the interview, we chat about how the fund approaches investing ethically and the outlook for dividends for the rest of the year. As ever, we end the podcast with our fund spotlight feature. For this episode, it's the turn of Liberty Godfrey, fund analyst at Interactive Investor, to run through one of the funds that is endorsed by Interactive Investor. But firstly, I'm joined by my colleague, Tom Bailey, ETF's editor at Interactive Investor, to chat through a couple of fund and investment trust news items. Tom, let's start off with a fund manager that is hoping to make a successful comeback in the industry, and that is Mark Barnett. Barnett is set to join boutique fund house Telworth Investments a year after his departure from Invesco. Barnett, of course, managed Invesco's income and high-income funds for several years before leaving Invesco last May. He was seen as the protege of former star fund manager Neil Woodford due to being the internal replacement for Woodford and for having a similar investment style of investing in value companies. Tom, you covered the news announcement. Was there, was there more information shared at this stage, such as details regarding whether Telworth Investments will be launching a fund for Barnett? Yeah, so right now it's not clear uh, in what capacity quite he'll be joining the company. Obviously, he'll be uh, involved in, in uh, stock picking, as you would expect as a, as a fund manager. Um, but whether or not he'll be given his own fund or he'll be joining a team or, or he'll have a kind of wider remit overseeing uh, other funds that the company runs it's not really clear right now we'll have to wait and see for that in, in terms of, of the timing though it seems it's quite a good time I think maybe for Barnett to be uh, rejoining because uh, as you mentioned he was Woodford's protege and, and that might always kind of hang over him as a, as a shadow but one of the key things here is that he was known for running value and income strategies uh, and focused on UK stocks um, so as a result he had a pretty challenging few years at Invesco before he left uh, last year so he obviously the funds he managed the open-ended uh, income and high-income funds they they underperformed the UK oil company sector um, kind of in the lowest quartile in the sector uh, over various periods of time however you look at it but as, as our listeners will know there's been a pickup in both value and UK stocks recently so it, it may be a good time for him to return to fund management uh, in whatever capacity that turns out to be at Telworth. We will of course keep listeners updated when more details are announced. Mark Barnett follow, follows in the footsteps of a number of other fund managers that have, over the past couple of years, moved from working at one of the big fund management companies to a boutique firm. Boutique fund management houses usually stick to one area, um, such as emerging markets or smaller companies, for example, rather than attempting to be a jack of all trades across various asset classes and sectors. Yeah, it makes sense to me that, uh, that he would join a, a boutique financial company right now. It definitely seems to be there's a kind of a, a split in, in the industry where you have the, the huge big fund houses. Often, you know, half of their funds are, are, are now uh, index funds, but you can think of places like Fidelity, um, obviously BlackRock, uh, and even Invesco has got an increasing number of um, assets in, in, in their ETF range. And then also they, they run their big strategies. 
And then on the other end of the market are these more boutique funds, as you say, and they have, they often invest in more or more niche areas of the market, uh, whether it's kind of small caps or emerging markets or some of the more niche parts of emerging markets, or even just some alternative strategies that wouldn't work in a big global fund. And I, and I think this is a good trend, really, because I think um, the boutiques are in a, in a best position to offer the kind of the sort of funds that, in my view, at least, are still worth being uh, actively run. You know, a global equity strategy, in my view at least, maybe you would just want to stick with a tracker or an ETF, but a small cap or, or some sort of niche emerging market strategy, that's what boutiques can provide and, and do it quite well. Yeah, and there's also um, the potential advantage of a boutique giving a fund manager more freedom in terms of the way they invest. Um, with a big fund management company, there, there could be more pressure to tow a corporate line. With a boutique firm, fund managers' in, uh, interests is usually more directly aligned with the fund's performance. And this is due to the fact that he or she will tend to have a bigger stake in the overall business. But of course, um, greater freedom is not always healthy or a good thing, particularly if there's a lack of oversight on how the fund manager invests and if the fund manager is not being uh, challenged appropriately. Well, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Woodford, and, that, and that's one of the main, um, one, of, one of the accusations against how his funds were run in, in the last days as, at Woodford Investment Management. So, yeah, there's always a risk there. The next news story that we're going to briefly chat through is the best and worst performing funds of the first quarter of this year. In terms of the winners, a key trend was the strong performance of funds that invest in smaller companies. Tom, what did you make of that? Yeah, so you had uh, M&G Japan smaller companies return 23%. You had Premier Might and UK smaller companies and Aberforth UK smaller companies with about 20% returns. So, uh, And you also you had several energy funds, uh, Schroeder Global Energy, Guinness Global Energy, um, and also the top performing uh, were some of these value funds uh, less well known, but so Cape Wrath Focus, and, I, and what all this shows really, I think, is is the reflation trade and the revival of value. So obviously, I mentioned one value fund, but you can easily uh, kind of classify the other small companies funds and the energy funds as somewhat in the value camp, um, because as as our listeners will know, small cap and energy uh, stocks are often also value stocks at the same time. So. You, know, you can see it always this kind of revival of value happening so far this year. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether this resurgence for value shares is just a short-term phenomenon or whether it can be sustained. It'll also be interesting to see whether the big losers of the first quarter of this year, which were predominantly gold funds, start to see their performances pick up in the months to come. Seven of the 10 worst performing funds over the quarter invest in gold and other precious metals. There are various reasons um, why gold funds have um, fallen out of form. Um, Bank of America cite a couple of reasons. They put it down to the lacklustre sales of jewellery in the face of COVID-19, a decline in demand from central banks and a general lack of interest from investors. Finally, there was some news for both fund investors and investors in exchange traded funds, ETFs. More than 500 ETFs have been added to the Investment Association's fund sectors. Tom, what's your thoughts on this? Personally, I think it's long overdue and should help investors avoid those um, active funds that persistently underperform passive fund or ETF equivalent. 
and are therefore not adding uh, value for investors. Yeah, I mean, this has been a long time coming. The IA has been talking about this since uh, at least 2019. And yeah, I agree it should be useful, um, but uh, and I think it also shows though how much more mainstream ETFs are becoming. Um, kind of, yeah, you know, we've seen loads of inflows over the last year, um, particularly in the last few months even, you can see all sorts of new new records drop. But obviously, IA has been thinking about this since 2019, and, and it's just become the fact that ETFs are now part of the investment universe uh, for any investor, and so should be added to these sectors. Um, I think we're interested to see how how far they go with this because it's still you know there's only 530 ETFs added it's, it's a reasonable amount but there's still many ETFs that won't be uh, particularly more niche ETFs following more niche strategies and also particularly um, uh, they only allow physical ETFs these are ETFs that hold the uh, the, the the stocks in the index they're tracking um, and they don't allow synthetics so they are trading quite cautiously and it will be interesting to see if they kind of start to open up even further down the line. For the next part of the podcast, I'm joined by Simon Moon, co-fund manager of the Unicorn UK Ethical Income Fund, which is a member of Interactive Investors ACE40. So Simon, the fund invests in mid and small cap companies. Could you briefly explain what sort of companies you find attractive and also run through the ethical guidelines that the fund follows? We do invest further down the market cap scale, but we like to find companies that are profitable, cash-generative market leaders with high growing and sustainable dividend yields. And we particularly like businesses that are transparent so we can gather an understanding of all operational, financial and indeed ESG risks and opportunities. It has, has a strictly defined um, ethical criteria which excludes certain sectors, you know, the usual sin sectors like tobacco, alcohol, armaments, etc., and this is combined with a long-standing exclusion we have uh, of resource-based stocks as well across the funds here. Um, and obviously that takes away a number of environmental concerns uh, from, the, from the, the word go. And we also um, leverage Unicorn's internal uh, responsible investment policy, which assesses the underlying ESG practices and ambitions of investing companies. And with the sectors that you exclude, how much of the universe of mid and small cap stocks does this eliminate? And in addition to that, do you actively use your shareholder influence to drive positive change among your holdings? In general, the exposure to some of the largest you know, so-called sin sectors, such as tobacco, oil and gas armaments, it reduces as you move down the market cap scale. You know, these companies tend to be younger and therefore less exposed to those more mature, structurally challenged sectors. And given our investment process is, is very disciplined, many of these companies are screened out over the normal course of the stock selection process, either on an ESG basis or, or financial characteristics, which, which we find sort of suboptimal. Um, and the addition of a negative screen has not really reduced uh, or materially reduced the investment investable universe. And our proprietary idea generation screen reduces the UK investable universe from the for the uh, UK income fund as well as the UK ethical income fund from about 2,000 companies uh, to to between 100 and 200 manageable ideas uh, on a relatively consistent basis and they all meet certain minimum quantitative uh, requirements and provide ideas of uh, further due diligence as well and um, you know we absolutely see engagement as a core part of our process yeah that takes different forms it might be encouraging a company to set ambitious environmental targets or, or increase the ambitiousness of their 
environmental targets, or it might be encouraging a company to improve their disclosure more broadly. You know, I think that's, that's, a, that's a, a bit of a problem with smaller companies from an ESG ratings perspective, is that um, the, you know, the less you disclose, the less likely you are to get a, a fuller ESG score that's more representative of your, of your business. And engagement helps, and engagement does work. And taking a long-term approach to investing in small caps like we do, you, know, you can make a difference over that time horizon. And how much of a challenge is it to produce a decent dividend yield without holding some of those sinner stocks that do generate a, a lot of income, such as the tobacco companies? You know, what we love about investing in, in smaller companies for yield is the fact that you're able to both get growth in earnings, growth in dividend, and appreciable dividend yield as well. We do really see it as an overlooked area of the market. Um, you know, it's a bit more labour-intensive. Um, certainly that than other areas of the market we feel and um, you know we see plenty of opportunities further down the market cap scale to invest in companies that can pay att- attractive dividend yields but also crucially you know, provide very attractive levels of growth as well and importantly these companies are not facing the same regulatory and, and social scrutiny that some of those larger um, you know for example tobacco companies are, play, uh, 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 are under for us they provide a better long-term and sustainable both yield and growth story. I mean, you only have to look at Biden's comments on nicotine levels yesterday that sent all tobacco companies tumbling. You know, the, the, the companies we, we're, we're identifying, we're targeting, tend to be much less exposed to similar regulatory risks. I wanted to now move on to performance since the start of 2020. Um, in, in 2020, the funds did fall heavily in the first quarter but has been in recovery mode um, ever since. So what's your assessment of overall performance during that sell-off and, and since then? Clearly, the first quarter of 2020 was uh, was a very challenging one as equity fund managers. I think one thing which is a key tenant of our investment process is, is how well-financed companies are, you know, the strength of their balance sheet. Uh, that was very important going into the pandemic for obvious reasons. In the broader market, we saw... You know, plenty of companies that required fundraisings to shore up balance sheets. That was very unlikely from companies within our portfolio. It's important going into the pandemic, but it will be equally as important as we come out as well, because you know the strength of those balance sheets largely dictates um, the speed, recovery, and resumption of dividend payments uh, and investment for growth into these businesses. Um, so that puts the, the, the overall portfolio in, I think, a better position in the wider market, given that its levels of financial gear in a far lower than the market. Uh, and we've been encouraged by the recovery in fund performance uh, and even more encouraged by the strength of the underlying trading in investee um, companies. You know, every time we speak to them, which is a big part of the job, they tend to exceed uh, you know, what we were expecting from the previous meeting, but they, they far exceeded what we might have hoped for this time last year. What's your outlook for the UK market and for dividends at the moment um, following a, a very strong six-month spell of performance for UK funds in general? Despite the recovery we, we saw you know, and, and the areas of the wider market saw in the last half of last year and the beginning of this year, you know, we think valuations for the UK remain cheap despite the removal of the hard Brexit risk, which was really overhanging the market for a considerable length of time. You remove that level of uncertainty, and you know I, I think you remove um, what has been a barrier to global asset allocators um, for the UK, and the UK basically underperformed from the referendum onwards, and, and we see a large removal of that element now. And we think that dividends in the broader market 
are, are lower and they're lower at a more sort of um, long-term level. You know, I think 2020, a lot of companies used the pandemic as an opportunity to rebase dividend payments and policies, which were unsustainable. You know, payout ratios basically have been getting narrower and narrower and you know, sort of dividend cover, as in earnings covering dividend payments, have been getting narrower and narrower um, in the run-up to, to the pandemic. And, and this gave lots of companies a very good reason to, to completely rebase unsustainable payments. And we're confident in the growth outlook for the portfolio's dividends, which are expected to recover strongly this year. Um, you know, what we saw, you know, these smaller companies tended to react faster at the beginning of 2020. They cut dividends quicker, but, but they've also um, returned to the dividend list more quickly and resumed dividend policies that were identical or, or unchanged, essentially, from the policies that existed pre-pandemic. So we've seen a much steeper um, recovery of dividend payments, a much greater gradient than the wider market. And, and they also demonstrate attractive growth characteristics alongside that as well. So I think that's a, a bit of a double positive. And finally, there seems to be a bit of a trend at the moment um, among fund managers to um, focus more towards the post-pandemic winners as the economy starts to reopen. Is that something you've been doing within the portfolio? I wouldn't necessarily say we'd be making big changes to the portfolio. You know, many of the companies which are set to benefit most in the near term from lockdown restrictions easing aren't really in a position to, to start paying decent dividends. You know, many of them got pretty beaten up uh, balance sheets because they've been through absolute turmoil over the last 12 months. And though they might offer a good um, a good recovery play in certain circumstances, you know, I'm not sure how long term it will be. I'm not also, you know, you're taking a bit of a view on on the on how much the ultimate end market has changed or hasn't changed or will return to pre-pandemic levels. I think there's various sectors where it it might have changed pretty much permanently. Um, and you know, looking further out, though, you know, we can see, um, yeah, with real confidence, a sustained economic and industrial recovery. And there are certainly plenty of companies in the portfolios, uh, and especially the UK fiscal income portfolio, that are well placed to benefit their you know, industrial recovery in the UK will be will be particularly strong. Um, also, about seventy percent of underlying earnings within the uh, within the portfolio are linked to the domestic economy. So uh, that that's very different from the wider market, uh, and that is you know, pretty favourable when you look at the UK's excellent vaccine rollout and the, the recovery of economic forecasts you've seen compared to some other major uh, developed markets. For our latest fund spotlight, it is the turn of Liberty Godfrey, fund analyst at Interactive Investor. Liberty, you're going to be running through the Marlborough Multicap Growth Fund, a member of Interactive Investor Super 60. So firstly, how does this fund invest? Well, Marlborough Multicap Growth aims to provide capital growth over a period of five years and aims to generate greater returns than the FTSE All Share Index over any three-year period. It aims to do this through investing in UK equities across the market capitalisation spectrum. It follows a high conviction approach and focuses on companies with good growth prospects. It's also been implementing ESG practices within the fund, particularly through governance assessments with a focus on sustainability and ethical behaviours, as well as participating in active engagement. Launched in 1995, it has a very strong track record and has been managed by the highly experienced manager, Richard Hallett, for over 15 years. 
And where does the fund currently investing? Could you give a couple of stock examples and sectors that it's favouring? Yeah, so it invests in shares of all sizes, with around 18% in mega cap, 15% in large cap, 37% in mid cap and around 15% in small cap. It's close to £300 million in size and is invested in 49 stocks, giving a high conviction approach with relatively meaningful investments. The three biggest sector exposures are consumer discretionary, industrials and technology. And the three largest holdings are Future, a global multi-platform media company, JD Sports Fashion, a retailer and distributor of branded sportswear and fashionwear, and Genus, a biotechnology product manufacturer and retailer to cattle and pig farmers. The fund can also have 20% allocation outside of the UK, currently at 11% and is primarily made up of US technology stocks. And finally, why do we think that this fund stands out from the competition? Well, the fund features on the Super 60 as a UK equity adventurous option. It's demonstrated a long-term track record of investing in the UK and follows a process to source companies with sustainable competitive advantages that they can use to raise prices or take market share. As well as gaining from the expertise of the highly experienced manager, investing in companies of all sizes gives investors access to a broad range of opportunities within the UK. That's all for this episode. I hope that you've enjoyed listening. Thank you to all of my guests. Please like and subscribe. And of course, you can find lots more investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk. We will be back at the start of May.